Welcome to the New Money Review podcast, the future of money in 30 minutes. I'm Paul Amory, the editor of New Money Review. Money is a form of communication, like writing, music and art. It goes back to the origins of human history. And now, money is changing fast in a way that will affect all of us. New types of money arrive out of nowhere, like Bitcoin. We now make payments with our phones, not with notes and coins. But as payments get faster, cheaper and digital, other aspects of money become more complex. Anyone reliant on cash is at risk of being excluded from the new financial system. Digital money is easily traceable, so who gets to monitor what we spend? There's increasing concern about what happens to our payments data, which are the most valuable digital records of all. In some areas of money, criminals and fraudsters are having the time of their lives. New and more inventive scams arrive by the week. What is the role of governments and central banks in this new world? And what about the big tech firms like Google, Apple, Facebook and the Chinese tech giants who are moving quickly into money? The New Money Review podcast takes a big picture look at all these trends and at their impact on society. It's not just money that's changing, but technology, finance, law, government and culture with it. Each episode, we interview a leading expert on one or more of these topics. By listening to the podcast, you can stay up to date with what's going on in this crucial area. If you enjoy this New Money Review podcast, why not stay in touch with our future releases? You can subscribe at iTunes, Spotify, or your usual podcast provider. My guest on this episode of the podcast is Angela Walsh, who is a professor of law at St. Mary's University School of Law in San Antonio, Texas, and also a research associate at the Centre for Blockchain Technologies at University College London. So, Angela, welcome to the New Money Review podcast. Could you start by telling listeners a little bit about yourself and your area of work? Sure. Thanks so much for having me. So um, I am a law professor at St. Mary's University in San Antonio, and I am a research associate with the Center for Blockchain Technologies at University College London. And I have been researching cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology since about 2012, 2013, um, and started off by thinking about Bitcoin as a new form of money um, because I was interested in what money was, <clears throat> who who got to make money um, to create it and decide what it was. Um, and people were talking about Bitcoin potentially being a new form of money. So I wanted to, you know, see what that was about. And since then, I have just kind of followed what my interests are in learning about these systems. Um, right away, I started to become interested interested in the governance of the systems because um, what I was seeing in practice in the governance wasn't matching a lot of the narratives about the governance. So um, since then, you know, I have learned about miners and developers and a whole bunch of other things, but um, I'm also interested in these systems from kind of an infrastructure and systemic risk perspective and how that connects to governance. Okay, great. Well, thank you very much for that uh, very helpful introduction. Have your concerns about the governance of cryptocurrency systems um, increased over time? Obviously, the we're talking on a day when the Bitcoin price has hit a new all-time high. There seems to be steadily increasing adoption of cryptocurrency. Uh, you know, has your has your concern have your concerns been the same all the way through, or are they kind of increasing with the uh, with the increasing prominence of these systems? 
Sure. So um, at the beginning, I was taking the perspective of what if these systems do become large and systemic and begin to act as infrastructure for our financial system. So my perspective at the beginning was already kind of the what if of their of if they're big, right? So I would say that my concerns have kind of um, been, you know, on the, in largely the same place all along. And I've kind of been watching the systems grow and my concerns, right, manifesting in as the systems have grown. Um, <clears throat> one thing that has changed, I would say, is that. Um, I was drawing pretty stark comparisons between the governance of these crypto systems like Bitcoin and the governance of um, our existing uh, financial system, how um, how we use, you know, um, you know, more kind of grown up policies in our existing financial system. Um, In my first paper that I published on this, I was talking about well, how do the principles for financial market infrastructure apply to a system like Bitcoin, assuming Bitcoin became significant enough to be considered financial market infrastructure? And um, how in our existing financial market infrastructures, we expect there to be policies to think about emergencies and to you know, do risk assessments and, and things like that. And we don't do those currently or at that time in Bitcoin. We, we still don't in a formal way. Um, so my faith though, in the governance of our existing financial market infrastructures and I guess governance generally in our large institutions has, I would say, kind of decreased over the last decade, probably as it has for many people. And I'm, I don't know, I'm figuring out right now whether I think that, you know, all governance is kind of an experiment and we are finding all the weaknesses in our existing financial market system governance experiment now. Yeah. Um, let, let me, let me quote something you, 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 uh, you said to the U S Senate committee on banking, housing and urban affairs. You spoke to them in, in July, a couple of months ago. Um, you, you said that, you know, you're, you said to them, I will close by emphasizing that crypto systems are very new experimental and poorly understood. The knowledge infrastructure around these systems is shaky and has lots of errors built into it. And many of the facts that we know about crypto systems are simply wrong. And then you go on to say that a lot of the words used to describe crypto, such as immutable, decentralized, trustless, uh, tamper-proof, secure, transparent, are problematic and, and yet highly consequential decisions are being based on these beliefs every day. What, you know, where do you think that, where, which of those terms do you think is, is you know, maybe most misleading or what, where are we going wrong in our understanding of the systems? Gosh, it's hard to pick which one is most misleading. Um, well, let's because, start with decentralized. Yeah. I mean, decentralized is perhaps the main major selling point of, let's say, Bitcoin. Sure. It's not, not controlled by a single actor. It's a network of computers that's everywhere and nowhere. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. What's wrong with the, what's wrong with describing Bitcoin as decentralized? Well, I think if you're using decentralized in a relative sense, as opposed to an absolute sense, it's less misleading. But I think that we don't often do that. I think that we often um, just say, oh, yeah, well, we have decentralized finance or Bitcoin is decentralized and then kind of stop our analysis at that point. And when we do that, we're assuming that 
power is diffuse in the system and that people cannot take advantage of their roles within the system um, to exploit users, um, to, to change the way that the system works in important ways. And um, <clears throat> I, I think that, that if, if we stop at that level of analysis, that we're wrong. <laughs> because I think that there are pockets of power within these systems and people within those pockets can change the outcomes that happen um, on the systems. That there's an important distinction here between um, like absolute power versus influence. And I'm kind of teasing that out in my research right now, trying to figure out um, how to articulate that. But um, the pockets of power, you know, it's, um, it's maybe different than what we're used to seeing with absolute power, but there's strong influence. And sometimes, you know, I, I'd say we're even moving from influence into control over certain key decisions. Right. Can, can we talk a bit in a bit more detail about Bitcoin? You, you, you mentioned in your in, the, in that you mentioned in that uh, uh, testimony you gave to the Senate uh, the, the role of software developers, miners, uh, other stakeholders like users, token holders, and uh, crypto exchanges. Uh, can you can you give some examples of where you think you know the, the hidden power of one or more of those groups has been used or exploited? Sure. Okay. So. Um... One, let's talk about uh, software developers, first of all. Um, software developers are essential in these crypto systems. Uh, they don't just run themselves, uh, despite a lot of, you know, uh, narrative to that effect. People create the systems, and that's software developers with, you know, sometimes investors and, and other people, but always have to have software developers involved for a system that runs on software. And even after the creation process, right, these systems endure and you have to have software developers who are thinking about how they need to change, how to fix problems within them, right, how to improve them. And um, it's at those moments where the code changes that you see the power of the software developers. So this manifests most obviously in moments where um, there is an emergency fix that is needed to the code. Okay. Someone reports a critical bug um, to the, you know, the security email address, and that goes to a very small number of people who would have access to that, to be able to even see that information. Those devs have to figure out how to address the emergency. Is it serious? Is it minor? Can it wait? Can, does it have to be fixed right now? Um, and in both, um, well, in, in many systems, but we've definitely seen it in Bitcoin. We've definitely seen it in Zcash. We've definitely seen it in Ethereum where information um, about a bug was not disclosed to the public about what it was, but yet the software developers, you know, pushed a fix to it and encouraged people to um, adopt the fix, but not disclose the reason for it. And so, in Bitcoin, this yeah. was the, the inflation bug that was discovered or revealed, I think, in 2018 or 2019. Yes, yes. That, that, and it, that they revealed that it had been fixed kind of in secret a year earlier. Yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, and, and if they hadn't... Uh, if they hadn't fixed it, it could have basically destroyed the whole system. Yeah. So it was an inflation bug, right? And Bitcoin's, you know, one of its key principles is that it, it will never have more than 21 million Bitcoin, right? And the inflation bug would have allowed, um, you know, the number of coins to far exceed that. 
So um, they encouraged people to fix a bug, but they didn't tell them how severe the bug was or what it was really about. So people uploaded the software on one basis. And then a few days later, they (coughs) revealed what the true basis of the the fix was. Now, people um, say, okay, well, so what? Don't we want them to fix the bug like that? Um, you know, you're, you're deterring people from fixing bugs by pointing out that there is power in this setting. And you know what? I think they absolutely did the right thing to, um, to save the system, to keep it stable, to act in the benefit of, you know, for the common good of the system. So I don't, I don't disagree with the way to fix it. However, um, I think that we need to be looking at, okay, and admitting this is a power, right? This is a power. And what can people do to exploit the power when they have that information? Well, they could trade for their own benefit. They could tip um, particular friends off of the the truth, right? They have, you know, you can analogize it to like material non-public information, right? Um, That they have in that moment. And do we just trust them with that? Or do we say, no, they're actually, they have duties to to the system at large to act in the system's benefit and not their own. And presumably, as, as these systems get bigger, the, you know, the amount of money involved gets larger and larger. You know, it's no longer uh, you know, 10 or 20 software developers who all know each other, but, but something much bigger. Then the temptation to kind of exploit such a bug gets, gets bigger uh, and, uh, and, and the likelihood of it happening also is, is bigger. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we have massive players involved now, right? You have the yeah. world's billionaires playing with this stuff and having, yeah. um, having stuff at stake, right? So... You know, we've got Jack Dorsey, we've got Mark Cuban, we've got Michael Saylor, we've got Elon Musk, who all have something to say. Yeah. And some of them are even, you know, funding the software developers, which is, you know, they need funding, right? We want there to be stable funding so that people are are um, manning kind of like this emergency response team. But we also want to be clear about potential conflicts of interest and where duties run. Do their duties run to their funder, like Jack Dorsey, or do they run to the system at large? Yeah. So what, what in your view, is the best way of addressing this? Is it just to, to try and kind of formalize people's responsibilities to write down a, a, a bit more formally what people do and what their what their responsibilities are? Or, how, you know, how do we how do we handle this, given it's a kind of constantly evolving mm-hmm. system? Yeah. Well, I think there's, you know, you can... You can adopt key principles, right? And it's interesting because, you know, I really think that um, principles that have um, kind of been with us, been with us through centuries, what the concept of a fiduciary, right? Someone who is um, supposed to act for the benefit of their beneficiaries rather than themselves, who also has an obligation to act with competence, right? Um, To not... Uh, to, to, to meet a certain standard of care. Um, I think those actually are really useful concepts. And here I'm not talking about a fiduciary like a lawyer is a fiduciary for an individual client. I'm talking about what is um, discussed in the fiduciary literature as a governance type fiduciary, right? Where um, they, they have duties to the, the system itself, Right. Um, So I think those have a lot of resonance for us and being explicit that people who sit in certain roles or or perform certain activities within the system, those are the people who we want to be acting in ways that are consistent with them having those duties. They already are 
to a large extent, acting that way. But I think we should be explicit about it, given the weight of the systems that are sitting on their shoulders. Right. So this this might be something like the principles for financial market infrastructures that exist within the within the traditional yeah. system, which are kind of high level principles on transparency, yep. governance, and and how things are managed. Yes, I, th- yeah. I think that that could be helpful. Um, and I, th- I think that we're stuck in this kind of um, weird dis- discussion where um, I don't want to admit that I have power because I think I'll get in trouble for it. And the systems are big and we <laughs> I feel like we just need to grow up, admit it and then come up with the principles. And I don't need to put I think people are often worried that, okay, she's trying to put me in jail or she's trying to bankrupt me if she's saying that I have accountability in these ways or I have certain responsibilities. I think we can structure it to where it's not, you know, the individuals themselves who are on the hook necessarily, but there needs to be pools of money like or bonds or insurance or something like that. We're, we're thinking uh, we're thinking in a, a grown up way because these systems are grown up now. Right. Yes. There's, there's yeah. Too I mean, much I, at stake. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm thinking about the way that some entities within crypto markets have tried to avoid such responsibilities in recent years, where there are, you know, the, these are exchanges that have tried to avoid being, you know, tied to any particular jurisdiction that are keep moving around to try and escape regulation, mm-hmm. or, or or entities that just don't respond to, uh, you know, requests for for transparency about their what they do or what they hold, um, you know, but I mean, on the other hand, I guess I could see the argument for people within the sector who say, well, if I start to communicate with the regulators, they're going to ask me lots of intrusive questions. I'm going to spend all my time doing compliance work rather than, you know, running the system. I mean, how do we, yeah. how do we achieve a balance there? Right. It's a, it is a tough balance. Um, I think going with principles um, rather than, you know, rigid, rigid rules might help um i think involving the um the 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 people with deep knowledge in the crypto space in the discussion is important i don't think they can be the only people in the room right i think there's an ongoing discussion right now about should there be a separate crypto regulator do we need actual new rules independent of the old ones for crypto and i um, have recently come to believe, like I would say over the summer and thinking thinking about these issues, I've come to the point where I think that we do need one. And um, I think that the process for creating that is, is really, really important, that it can't fully be captured by industry. You need, um, you need a real diversity of voices involved there. Yeah. So this is, this is what the, 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 the CEO of Coinbase was calling for a, a week or two ago. You know, said we need, we need a new regulator for for cryptocurrency, because you know the 1930s New Deal era rules about securities markets and investment companies don't really work. You, you, you'd agree with that view? So I was surprised that I do agree in some ways with with this. Um, I don't. Um, I'm often skeptical of what you know the industry puts out, but um, in principle, I I am on board with the idea that we need a a new regulator or new rules for this. And there are several reasons for this. Um, first of all, we've spent, you know, a decade or so trying to figure out how uh, tokens and crypto systems fit into our, in the US, our very fragmented financial regulatory structure. And still there is no clarity. 
um, despite claims from the regulators um, that there is clarity. Um, I do agree with the industry on this point that there is not. Um, I think we're making problematic decisions um, that do not address the true risks of these of these assets by putting them into these categories. Like I disagree with the commodity uh, characterization of Bitcoin um, and and Ether. I also think that, um, you know, while we're waiting and having this, you know, let, let me just stop you there. Yeah, so what, sorry. What, why, why do you disagree with the commodity with treating Bitcoin or Ether as a commodity? So um, the core of the core of my disagreement with that is that <clears throat> I think they're more malleable um, than commodities typically and, are. And like, gold, like, than a gold bar. Yes, and I be, and I say that because the fundamental composition of what is a Bitcoin or what is, um, you know, an Ether token can change dramatically based on the decisions of the people within the systems. But the chemical makeup of gold, for instance, cannot change. So I think we're um, we're ignoring that fluidity and the ability to manipulate the the most basic characteristics of these You're not talking about, um, sorry to interrupt you, Angela, you're not yeah. talking about, about some Bitcoins being treated as less uh, fungible than others because they're attached to some past no. money laundering or crime. You're not talking about that, that no. aspect of... No, so I'm talking, talking about, the, about... The inherent nature of the... Of the, the inherent the, nature. Tokens. So like, yeah. so the, the code that, you know, creates these, these systems and these tokens is changeable, right? You can change the number of Bitcoins, um, right? If the, if the parties in the system decide to do so, right? You can change the cap. You can change, um, you can change all the attributes of it that come from code based on the decisions of the people within the system. And um, so I, I would like to put all this in a paper and wrestle out all the, the nuances here. Um, but to me that we're, we're viewing them as these little fixed boxes, right? Unchangeable boxes kind of that we've got these commodities we can stack and we understand they're modular and we can fit them into our regulatory system like that. But I think they're a lot messier than that. I don't think they're nice little boxes. Mm -hmm. So who do you think can lead? I mean, given that these are global challenges, it's not just a, you know, a problem for any one country within the system. Obviously the U S has a big role to play given it's the largest, uh, financial market in the world. But I mean, how do we how do we move forward on, on, on this? Because we've got so many different regulators with, with so many central banks all you know, with a, a view on, on most of these things. Yep. Uh, how, how, how on earth are we going to get some kind of consensus? God. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I, I, you know, do I put on my optimistic hat or do I put on my, dare I say, realistic hat? Um, gosh, you know, in an ideal world, we would have, um, you know, some sort of great conference and collaboration and global working groups to come up with a regulatory framework um, to to address this globally, because absolutely, um, these things are fully global, right? The idea that they respect boundaries, nation state boundaries is, it's just, it's, <laughs> it's not reality. So I would love to get people together. I mean, we've done it for some other things that have been important, right? We've done it uh, like, you know, we have international standards in, uh, with the Financial Action Task Force for money laundering stuff. We have the Basel standards. We have, you know, we have some international standards um, 
So it's not impossible, but this the but given the realities in the world today, um, it may be difficult to accomplish. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. One thing I wanted to mention before we move on, kind of on this, um, the you know the need for a new regulator, and um, I do think there there is urgency to it um, because the risks of the systems have been growing with their scale. Right. And, and with the interconnectedness between traditional finance and um, what I've been calling the crypto financial system, although I think that right now it's probably it probably makes sense for me to stop calling these separate systems because they're yes. becoming so fully intertwined. But also, I think that the um, the delay in regulators truly giving clarity on the, the points that I've discussed um, in my work, like who has responsibility to care for these systems, right? Who, who um, is, is tasked with saving them, with making sure they're up to snuff, all of that. I think that um, the ambiguities there about accountability and obligations um, are actually in contributing to systemic risk because people may not step forward to do it until there is clarity about their role and you know, what they can be accountable for. Yes, I mean, I noticed that the Bank of England deputy governor said uh, a week or so ago that, that crypto is now creating systemic risks, and that's that's quite a significant shift uh, amongst yeah. that you know that central bank compared to two or three yes. years ago when they looked at it as a bit of a side issue. Now they now they're they're, they're thinking it is intertwined, and yeah. there are many ways that we can see that it is intertwined, whether it's through stable coins or leverage, the involvement of hedge funds, you know, all the, yep. all the kind of. Uh, the DeFi yep. ecosystem that's being built around uh, cryptocurrency. You know, it's, uh, so, yeah. yeah, so I think that that's, so I've been pointing to the systemic risk is coming. The systemic risk is coming, right, for for years now. Um, and I've, I've written op-eds and stuff about this. Um, it, it raises a really big question, I think, a fundamental question um, of when you can see systemic risk will come with growth, and um, and interconnection, right? When do you start worrying about it? And it has seemed like regulators didn't want to start considering it or really worrying about it until oh, we're there. Now we can say it's a systemic risk, and now we can start to do something about it. And I, I, I think there's a lot of you know, theor- like that's an under theorized area. I think like when do we start to worry about something being a systemic risk? Wait till it's there. Or start way early. Yeah, I mean to be to be uh, frank, they don't have a great record of, of, of spotting these things and acting before before well, things. Well, then they uh, need to listen to different crash. people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, let me ask you about um, you, you know one area of the law that I know you've written a bit about. Uh, you talked about limited liability and the, the role of what, what, what you call the corp. Well, what is called in the law, I think, the corporate veil is, I guess, the the. Uh, the idea that you could, you know, as a shareholder of a company or the owner of a company, you, you have some certain privileges um, compared to running the business in your own name. Um, why do you see parallels between that uh, quite long-standing concept and what's going on in, in some areas of crypto? Yeah. Um, so, right. So the corporate veil kind of um, provides this liability shield, right? Um, the the shareholders don't have to be liable for the actions of the corporation. Um, 
if if they have done what's necessary to set up the entity right and um, and kind of tick the boxes that the state has deemed necessary um, to provide this benefit to them. Um, so we have some similarities, I think, to um, our business entities, our traditional business entities in crypto systems, right? We have a group of people um, involved in a common endeavor and, you know, there's debate about whether this is this endeavor is intended to, you know, result in profits. I think there are strong arguments that that that, that is the point in many of these systems. But um, what what I what I have seen happening, or I think there's an argument for this, is that we are treating these systems as if they are already beneficiaries of a type of corporate veil, as if they have availed themselves of um, of these protections that a traditional legal entity would give them. And I think that even, we, even though they haven't set up, even, even though, though they haven't, they haven't set yeah. up anything, yeah. they haven't ticked any boxes. They haven't said, these are the things that we have to do in order to get these protections. I think that we're doing it, um, by default here by saying, if you're decentralized, that's good enough you get this liability protection. And the argument for that is that power is diffuse enough, right, in these systems that apparently nobody should be accountable within them. That that seems to be the argument for that. Um, and that they're different enough. There's no people who have um, who have private information. There's no like information asymmetries and stuff that would it's, it's a different situation. So we can label them decentralized and say that that is, we, we can't pierce that because they're decentralized. We, there's no people in there to be accountable. Right. So in the traditional legal system, a judge can, in certain circumstances, look through the corporation and say, look, you're, you, you didn't obey the rules. You're, you're individually liable. Yes. Right. That's called okay. piercing the veil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and you think we need to do something similar in certain areas of crypto? Well, I think we need to think about, should we be giving them the benefits of limited liability without having actually considered it in a a real public policy debate and setting, right? I don't think that there should be just kind of like these, oop, it's a default um, limited liability status that you've been given. Um, Let's have that discussion and debate about whether the way that these things are structured and how power operates in the systems and the incentives that we want to create for the parties acting within them, the risk to society, like let's have that full fledged discussion and decide whether decentral nominal decentralization is a reason for awarding limited liability status instead of just kind of doing it through the back door. Mm-hmm. Um, is there is there a way we can measure decentralization in different cryptocurrency or crypto asset networks? Mm-hmm. So there's um, so I wrote this paper deconstructing decentralization um, a few years ago now, and um, there's been a lot of discussion on this topic since then. Um, I, I kind of wrote it in the moment when people like you know the um, I would say the leaders in the space were starting to think about. Mm, is this is this really a good a good term? What does it mean? Let's press on it more. Um, since then, there have been a number of efforts to try to measure, quantify decentralization. Um, some parts of uh, so it's important to remember, right? 
these are complex systems. So you have to think about the different places where they could be centralized. And from my perspective, I think that if they're centralized, if power is centralized in one location, that kind of um, removes the ability of the system to say they are decentralized overall, right? Centralization anywhere within the system um, kind of X's out decentralization as an aggregate concept. For so, so, so given what you said earlier about certain uh, categories of people having you know, significantly more power than we often imagine, maybe, maybe software developers or, or other, other people within the community, I mean, but it, it, so it kind of it turns out that nobody is really decentralized. Well, I would say nobody is like decentralized enough that we don't need to th- to address or th- or think about addressing power structures within, right? I think that the like the the fatal um, the fatal stance by policymakers and regulators has not been to like reach into the systems with their analyses and um, and and think about power and exploitation. Um, like we stop at the black box label of them as a commodity and then don't reach yeah. in further. Yeah. And I, I think that's the, the problem. So people are talking about, you know, you can measure decentralization by counting, uh, by looking at the hash power and how it is um, divided amongst different mining pools, where they're located. Um, you can look at um, how many different um, software clients there are for a given protocol, meaning like different kind of uh, software projects that implement the rules of the protocol. Um, you can look at how many developers are active in the protocols. You can look at how many people actually have um, the, you know, the passwords or the access or the keys to access the software repositories for them. There's many things you can measure. Um, I think that the qualitative is going to often trumps the quantitative here in reality, and qualitative is hard to measure. Yeah. Uh, earlier this year, I, I interviewed on the podcast uh, Kathleen Moriarty, who's done a lot of work in in the in the work in the area of ETFs, and, and was involved in designing the first uh, US listed ETF uh, for the S and P five hundred. And we were talking about the the, the the role of securities law and how it was introduced after the. The 1920s uh, Wall Street crash in 1929, and she said that in the run-up to the crash, there'd been basically a free-for-all of insider trading, people doing what they wanted. You know, you could basically say whatever you wanted and sell whatever you wanted, and and, and you could get away with it. Um, it. That was a period that was then addressed by you know, very significant changes in the law, uh, federal law, new federal laws in the in the U.S. and a kind of a framework that's still in place today. How how severe do you think the those Information asymmetries are within cryptocurrency. Are we are we are we living through something similar to the the kind of the wild nineteen twenties, or is it qualitatively different? So that's a great question. Um, really interesting to to think about it through that lens. Um, I think that I think that the story that the industry is telling is is very different from that time period in that the industry is claiming that the way these systems are set up um, ensures transparency and um, is is more efficient in you know prote- protecting against risks you don't have these parties there able to exploit hidden information. So the story is very much that 
there's no possibility of it, that these systems are actually an improvement on existing financial systems for, for reasons of transparency. You can see everything on the blockchain, right? The bo- blockchain record is public and everyone can see everything. But I think that messaging is um, very simplistic um, and that the reality is that plenty of stuff can happen off chain, right? Uh, not everything is going to show up. Not every problematic behavior is going to show up on the ledger itself. Um, there was just a, a paper released, uh, being released, a computer science paper being released that looks at um, whether miners in the Bitcoin system um, act for their own benefit, whether there's evidence that they act for their own benefit or whether they just like truly kind of um, abide by what are the norms of the system in that they will process transactions just based on the size of the transaction fee and put them on in that order. And there's no funny business. Right. Um, And it, I'm in the middle of it, but the conclusions were such that the statistically, it looks like miners are, you know, privileging themselves in many, in many situations. And there are also actions that do not show up on chain that they can take payments through other, like the payments the transaction fees that show up um, when people propose transactions on a system like Bitcoin are not the only ways that these miners can be paid, right? They can take side channel payments. Like there's, and people forget that they act like that cannot be true, but not everything is transparent. Um, And I think that we, we, when you miss, (laughs) when you miss those things, you're allowing those to be exploited you know, with abandon in Ethereum, right? It's been more acknowledged here. And it, I think probably is a bigger problem, this concept of minor extractable value, where the validators have full control over which transactions and the order of those transactions occur within, you know, the blocks that they propose to be added to the ledger. Um, technologists, I talked about this in my testimony, right? The technologists call this, when the, the miner is selecting their blocks, they're in God mode, Okay, they they are they are in control, and um, there's millions and millions of dollars in value that miners are kind of siphoning from the system um, through through um, choosing to benefit themselves when they see a transaction coming through and say, mm, "I wanna, I want that for me," or "I will sell, uh, I will, um, you know, exploit from a financial perspective. I'll make you pay me if you want to get first in line in the transaction." Right, so. Um, I think we've got to look, as I said, past the black box outline and, and get inside yeah. the systems. Yeah. Thank you very much, Angela, for a very interesting chat. Just a bit, bit before we before we uh, wrap up, what are you you know what are your key areas of focus at the moment? What are you working on? And what do you yeah. think is particularly interesting across the crypto markets? Yep. So I am still focused right now on this idea that miners are absolutely intermediaries within these systems and. Um, so I'm, I'm thinking a lot about miners and I'm learning, I'm trying to learn also about um, the debate on the environmental impact of miners and their effects on energy grids. I'm working on organizing a conference in spring 2022 in Texas because Texas is now the, where I'm based, is the mecca apparently for crypto miners. And there's a strong debate on are they good for the grid or bad for the grid? Yes, very interesting topic. 
Yep. So, and many more things. I've, I've got a long list, but um, yep. Well, great. Thank you very much for your time. It's been a very interesting chat and I look forward to staying in touch. Thanks so much, Paul. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the New Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like it, share it, or tell a friend about it. At our website, newmoneyreview.com, you can also sign up to our newsletter, which will keep you informed of all New Money Review articles and podcasts. If you'd like to support our work, you can do so via Patreon or using cryptocurrency. Details of how to do this are on the homepage of our website. Finally, please join us soon for our next episode.